Today, we're going to go back to the book of James, chapter 5, and we're going to look at, the, at, at, at how we live in light of what God has done for us. Because faith in Jesus Christ works out in our lives. It has ramifications on how you and I go about our daily lives, and it has ramifications on, on how we, you know, the decisions we make, um, where we put our trust, how we treat other people. All of these things that, that go on here in this temporal life are framed by the eternal, and we can't ever separate the two. And so today in, in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James deals with a very serious topic here, and, and it's one that, that speaks to, to those who know the Lord and those who don't, and that's God's judgment on wickedness. Look at what James says in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Lord, we ask that you would meet with us over the next few minutes as we open your word. Help us to understand and to truly grasp and realize that the only way that we can hear from you is through your word. And so, Lord, I pray today you'd help me to get out of the way, not say anything that would distract from what you'd like to do in our hearts today. And that we would truly, through your Holy Spirit, hear what you have to say to us through the word of God. That you would meet our needs, whatever it is we're struggling with today, whatever it is we have failed to surrender to you, we have shaken our fist at you about, that you would truly help us to see that there's no way to live. But the only way to live is to come to know you and to live um, in submission to you, seeking your glory in our lives. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being the one who is in control and that we can rest, that you will take care of all things in your time. In your name we pray, amen. Our actions always have consequences. That is just a basic fact of life and one that you may have learned at a very early age, that your actions have consequences, whether they be good or bad. It may be the harmony in the home on a Saturday morning because there's unusual kindness being shown towards others. Or it may be the hardships that we face in our lives because of a sinful choice that we made. These are all products of what we have said or done or otherwise acted upon that, that bring results in our lives. And when we talk about God, we have to understand that God is a God of mercy and love and grace, but we, we don't want to miss this aspect that God is a just God. And as such, he will bring the consequences of sin to bear on those who have acted in said sin. And God doesn't always bring those consequences when we think it will happen, but he, it will happen. 
And James, in James chapter 5, addresses the judgment of God on the wickedness of men here in these first six verses. And if you have been following along, or if you, uh, in, in our study here, or maybe you've read the book of James on your own, you come to this conclusion that James is a book about action. That there are things that, 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 that spur us on here to, to take action in, in God. And in this passage... The action that, that this should spur us to really is twofold. The first action is that of repentance. If we stand before God as one who has never trusted in him, then you and I, we need to repent of our sins and turn to him. Or, as a Christian, if there is sin in your life that God has been trying to get you to surrender to him, that he's been hammering away in your heart about, that now is the time to live in perfect harmony and fellowship with him through, his, through, through a right relationship with him. That's the first action, that of repentance. But second, what we find in this passage is an action of trust. If you feel this world is sinful, if you feel like things have gone haywire and you don't know what's going to happen, if you feel like right is wrong and wrong is overwhelmingly embraced and rewarded as right, you are not alone and you and I have hope. God is still on the throne. And God has always been and will always be the judge. That is not our job. And so what we see from this passage is that because God will surely judge in his holy sovereignty, I must trust him alone to find grace and peace. You could take out the is in that statement up there, okay? Because God will surely judge sin in his holy sovereignty, I must trust him alone to find grace and peace. Grace and peace aren't found in ourselves. Grace and peace aren't found in some scheme of man or some 12-step process or some self-help book. Grace and peace are only found in God who is sovereign above all things. He is the only one who can give us these things. He's the only one who is in control, and he's the only one that we must rest and we must trust in. Nothing else comes close. And so here, we begin to break this passage apart. We see in the first three verses that James shares with his readers that there is a surety of judgment coming upon their lives. And the first part of this is James giving their attention to tell them that there is a warning of woe that they're going to experience. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. We saw this statement, this introductory statement at the end of uh, chapter 4. We're in verse 13, just come now. And it's a strong call, again, for the reader's attention to listen up, to pay attention. Because what's to be said here is an important thing that, that we are not to miss. Just as there are those who will hear these things and trust in themselves and their own plans and not in God, and that's what he dealt with at the end of James chapter 4, there are also those who trust in their wealth and their ill-gotten gains and themselves to, to, to be right and to have everything they need in life. And so admittedly, when we come to this passage and we begin to, to look through the verse six verses, the audience can seem a little muddled in our minds. Because here is James and he's writing to the church in Jerusalem. And so he's dealing specifically in the second person. Come now you and listen. He says that over and over, you and you and you. I mean, all throughout the letter, right? And so, so is the case here in these first six verses. So that would lead us to believe that he is speaking to those that he expects to hear this letter because they would have read it there in the church at Jerusalem. 
But we must also admit that when we read these six verses, what we find there are not attitudes or, or, or characteristics that should be present in the life of anyone who says they follow Christ. So the question is, to whom is James speaking? Well, certainly within the church at Jerusalem, it was very possible that there were those who were faking it, that they claimed to be Christians and they put on the right show in front of the right people, but were instead in this section that James discusses here, those who who were trusting in themselves. There's also here, though, some hearkening back to what James said. In James chapter 2, James is addressing uh, the sin of partiality. And he said there in verses 6 and 7, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So it seems that James will be coming back around to this group that he had addressed earlier. And that wasn't necessarily including everyone who was in the church. And so, since James addressed his discourse on partiality to this end earlier, it would make sense that he is now talking to these rich ones who have come into the congregation and have have been shown favoritism by those who are there. But let us also note that James' words here need not be limited to those who don't follow Christ. He is speaking to and about those who are unsaved, And if he is speaking to them, it is a reassurance to believers that God will always judge sin. That's the trust aspect we talked about. This is not to encourage reveling in such a fact. God doesn't tell us that he's going to judge sin so we can walk around and rub our hands together and say, (laughs) just you wait, right? No, God tells us that he's going to judge sin so that we'll trust him to do what he says he's going to do and continue to serve him in the way he's called us to serve him to share with others the message of the gospel. And we are to leave justice in the hands of God. But however, there is another application from these things to Christians as well. For Christians struggle with sin on the side of eternity. How many of you who know the Lord would admit, by maybe we say amen, that you struggle with sin? Right up here is where it starts. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle to follow God as we should. A failure to surrender our wills and ourselves to God will result in sin for the Christian as well. And so, these things that James speaks about here can be found present in the lives of Christians as well. And so let's go back to the question, who is James speaking to? Well, in essence, he's speaking to all of the above. He's addressing those who are playing the game and aren't really trusting the Lord. He is addressing those who are without the church and living in their sin, as well as the believers who have fallen into sin of trusting in the riches and instead of the Lord. And I just want to be very clear from the outset of this passage that what James is not doing here, James is not condemning being rich or having nice things. He is condemning a materialistic mentality and lifestyle. This is a stance that James is taking against finding your fulfillment and value in the things that you have in this life. This is an attack against the sinful gathering of these things. And indeed, the scripture is very clear that it is possible to be rich and serve the Lord. Think of a man like Abraham from the Old Testament. That man was extremely rich and and God did amazing things in and through his life. He was blessed abundantly by the Lord. But I want you to see the perspective of Abraham on such a matter in Genesis chapter 
14, verses 22 through 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will take not anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went after me, Anar, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. When Abram went and rescued his nephew Lot um, in, in battle, and the king of Sodom wished to repay him, Abram made it very clear that it was God who had blessed him. And no man was to get the credit for that. And it was God then who had received the glory. Now, Scripture on the flip side does make it very clear to us that riches in this life come with extra burden and extra temptation. We, sinful beings struggle with not letting our focus be taken away with what we have right in front of us. Solomon, the third king of Israel, the king who had it all, gave into the things that he enjoyed, and he lived for himself in his latter years. And you can read about Solomon and these things in the Old Testament. Then Jesus, in his own ministry in Matthew chapter 19, had an interaction with a man that we just know simply as the rich young ruler who came to him seeking to, to know well, how is it he was to gain eternal life. And Jesus called for his complete trust in God and not in his things. And the man walked away because he couldn't do that. As I say, he loved his stuff more than the Savior. And at Matthew 19, Jesus said in verses 23 and 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus did not say that rich people did not enter the kingdom of God. He said it was hard. Why is it hard? Because, again, we struggle with the here and now. If I feel like I have everything I need, it's hard for me to listen to the things of God. And that's true, by the way, not just of those who don't know the Lord, but those that God has blessed even who know the Lord. Sometimes we let our things become our focus instead of our God. And so, we need to, what do we need, need to, in order to understand God's truth or the truth of this? We need God's perspective on the matter. And that perspective comes right away from James in the surety of judgment. He calls for those who are rich and therefore trusting in those things to mourn for their coming woe. James says, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. This is a a strong, extremely strong phrase, and it takes two words here and puts them together when it says weep and howl. The word weep was used to, to describe the wailing that took place upon someone's death there in ancient Israel. So you have this wailing of someone who had died, and you're coupling it then with an onomatopoetic word that, that was used for howl. And really, that's the idea that the word was there. It was kind of like the sound that would, one would make in this when they would howl. And it really carries the idea then, when you put them together, this screaming or this shrieking at this horrible thing that is coming. What is this horrible thing that is coming? It is the judgment of God on set. James is painting a picture of intense, violent, and uncontrollable grief. And why are they reacting? in such a way because of the things that are coming upon them, James says. That, that these are miseries. There are miseries. And the word miseries is the idea of overwhelming hardships 
that are about to be visited upon them and their wealth. And though they seemingly have everything, if that is where their trust lies, they will find themselves severely lacking in the end when it truly matters. No matter how good you think you have it in this life, if you do not trust in God and God alone for your eternity, you will regret not trusting him every moment of that eternity. So Christian, if if the materialism of this world has crept into your life, God can and will take these things away to bring you back to himself. And the very things that you trusted in are the very things that witness his power and his eternal nature. James says that in verses 2 and 3, there is a witness of wrongdoing in the lives of these people. James says, starting in verse 2, Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So throughout the ages, wealth has been measured in many different ways. Same is true in James' day here. The picture in these verses shows that, that, that there's three different ways that wealth was measured, and it shows the power of God over wealth. It doesn't matter how diverse your portfolio is, God is greater than anything. Hoarding really is what James shows us here, a picture of hoarding, and, and hoarding is a horrible thing. We are called, yes, to care for our families, but there comes a point in our lives which we've crossed that threshold. We're no longer caring for our families. We're no longer caring for these things, but we're just gathering up as much as we can. The responsibility of a Christian is to use all that he has for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Hoarding the resources of God for ourselves goes against God's purpose for these things. And Believer or unbeliever, the things that are hoarded in an effort to meet one's desires will not stand before an eternal God. So James says, first of all, that your riches are corrupted. And this is where we meet that first measure of wealth, because the word corrupted means, when it says they have corrupted, means they have rotted. And what he's speaking about is he's speaking about the wealth of food or foodstuffs that have been gathered up. The grain that is squirreled away especially in an agricultural setting like Israel, will not last forever. Inevitably, it will go bad. It has a short shelf life. And when it does, it is such a waste because it is of no use to anyone anymore. James then says, not only will it be rotted, but then it will be moth-eaten. And what is he speaking of then? Now he's moved from grain to the garments that they wear. Clothing then, and even now, was a way that people showed or even stored their wealth. Sometimes they were embroidered, those, these cloths that they wore. Sometimes they had jewels on them. They would be handed down as heirlooms to other people. But you know what levels the playing field is the bugs. Because the moths and the, and the little creatures, they love the rich person's clothes just as much as they love the, the, the beggar's clothes on the street. And once again, if these things are are eaten through by moss, what good does it do anyone? So James goes to the grain and the garments and turns his eyes then to the gold and the silver. Of all the things mentioned here, probably most of us look at that and go, well, I mean, that would seem to be the safest, right? But what does James says? That your gold and your silver have corroded. 
Everyone seems to know the value of precious metals and their durability, but James says that even in the face of God's judgment, these are corroded. That word corroded means to rust or to tarnish. Now, we understand that pure gold and silver may not rust, but they do tarnish. And really, in the face of God's judgment, gold and silver are just as good as a rusty piece of metal. They will not stand up before God. And in fact, James says, not only do they not stand up, what does he say there at the end of of, of verse 3? He says, their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your your flesh like fire. They will be a witness at, at that judgment and they will be part of that judgment. We think there is safety in gathering more and more to ourselves. But really what we're doing is fueling the fire of our own judgment. The things that are hoarded, thinking they will save us or give us the life we really desire, will instead be the source of our judgment before a holy God. The treasure is heaped up, James says, in the last days. He says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days, but will all be for naught before God. What are the last days? Well, the, the days that we live in. Not, and James is talking in his time and ours because Christ has already come and he's paid the price of redemption. We are now in the last days and we've been in those last days for over 2,000 years. God is the balancer of the scales and your possessions before him are nothing. But the hoarded riches themselves aren't the only sinful thing here. James is going to continue to advance through this passage and points out how these things have been attained. Because not only is there, there is a surety of judgment coming, but, but we see the sinful acquisition of wicked wealth. And we see that here in verse 4. It says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And so there's a testimony against the wicked here by those that they oppress. Simon J. Kistemaker, in his commentary, said it very simply, one sin always leads to others. And so those who have the sin, they're hoarding these things for themselves. They're gathering up thinking, hey, this will save me. This will give me what I want. This will fulfill me. They see here that, that the rich that James addresses have not gotten their wealth through simple hard work. And frugality. Instead, what they have done is defrauded others that they may line their own pockets. James takes us to the fields of Israel where all of us can see exactly what is happening. In this culture, the payment for the workers happened on a daily basis. They're known as day laborers. And so day laborers were hired to come into and work in the fields. And at the end of the day, before they went home, their accounts were to be settled. And God was very clear in his law to his people how this was to be handled in Leviticus 19.13. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So the livelihood of a worker's family depended on him receiving his wages as promised by his employer. So the rich ones here had hired laborers to reap their fields. And, and, and that's a very important and vital thing that they had to do. When your fields come in to harvest, you don't sit around and wait. You don't say, well, we'll get to it eventually. You get on it. Because what could happen is you could have weather come in, you could have uh, uh, um, animals or something like that come in, and they can ruin your entire harvest or a good portion of it. 
And so they hired all these workers to come out and reap the fields. And instead of paying these workers, these wages have been withheld. And James isn't saying that, that, that it was wrong to just defer the payment because it had become clear that they never intended to pay these ones. What they were doing was they were stealing from them. And the words of the prophet Jeremiah ring true here when he said in Jeremiah twenty two thirteen, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. And though these laborers may find themselves without recourse, God has not let it go unnoticed. For, for these, these wages, this testimony that's being offered against the wicked stirs up the force of right in the second part of verse 4. It said, uh, James says that it cries out, or they cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The unpaid wages may be a private matter between the employer and the employee. But understand this, when it comes to God, there's no such thing as a private matter. All things are open before him. He knows what is right. He knows what is wrong. And try as they might, they could not silence the sin from coming before God. In fact, James says that this sin, these things, the unpaid wages cry out before God. This means literally that they shout or they scream. Before a holy God, sin stands out. Sin makes itself known. God is the defender of right. God is the repayer of iniquity. And the cries of the defrauded have reached, James says, the Lord of Sabaoth. That's an interesting title there. Sabaoth is an untranslated Greek word. And that comes from the Hebrew word to Saba, which means host or armies. So he's literally calling him the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. God is the commander of the armies of heaven. And he will bring those armies to bear in final judgment of all who oppose him. Rejecting God and his way is not not just something we blow off and say, well, that's not a big deal. No, rejecting God is a declaration of war against God. And God will will bring justice on all of his enemies. You know, sometimes we sit around and we worry ourselves with things like, well, what will people think of me? Or what if people are judging me? When we really should be instead worrying ourselves with how God sees us, not how man sees us. If we truly see ourselves as we are before God, then we must truly see the judgment that God will bring upon us. That no matter how good our life on earth may be, there is coming a day of reckoning. And if we continue to entertain sin in our lives and we continue to reject God, that reckoning will come for us. No matter what. Because our sins carry with them an eternal price. And here, James names the shameful deeds that are carried out by those who possess this wicked wealth. In verses 5 and 6, we see finally this morning the shameful deeds of the wealthy wicked You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. 
there is an indulgence of wealth that is taking place in the lives of these wicked ones. Having hoarded resources and wealth and having stolen from their hired hands, the rich now live indulgently. There's a line that is crossed somewhere between enjoying what God has given us and living in self-indulgence. Because a life that is given to self-satisfaction is soon consumed by pursuits of selfishness. So well, I don't know where that line is. I'll tell you, you know, the biggest way we can know, what are we living for? If you're living for yourself, you've crossed the line, my friend. If we're living for our own happiness and we're going to defend, well, this is what I think is right and I just want to make sure God agrees with me, then we are not living for God. We're living for ourselves. There's a distinct loss of self-denial when it comes to sin. And it's particularly in the sin here of wicked wealth. The problem of living for things on this earth is that there is an ever-increasing law of diminishing returns. Have you ever noticed that? That what once made us happy no longer makes us happy. You know, I I think that the easiest way to illustrate this, maybe it's a little silly, is you get all excited on Christmas or major holiday or or maybe not just because you you need a new TV and you go out and you buy yourself a 55-inch TV. Woo, that's great, right? As you walk out to the trash to put the box out there, guess what you see your neighbor has? You have a 65-inch TV box. And you go, hmm. Could have had it, right? I could have had it. Or it goes with anything, any possession we may have, any experience we may have, anything that, that we do in this life that is temporary has a law of diminishing returns. Any sin we engage in has the same. The things that we know we shouldn't have looked at but we did do not give us the same thing or thrill they gave us last time. So we have to take it further. The money that we gained from doing this or that or pursuing this doesn't go as far as it used to or doesn't buy the things that we now want, so we need more and we need to engage in more of these things. The anger that we showed towards our loved one doesn't give us a satisfaction, so we have to up the ante a little bit. Sin is a, is a constant battle of the law of diminishing returns. It drags you deeper and deeper and deeper. That which once gave you the thrill of happiness doesn't do it anymore because only God can offer these things. Only God can give this even in the temporal things of this life when they're used the way he he tells us to use them. You and I may not have much on this side of eternity, but if we serve the Lord with everything we have, we can find fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And so these wealthy are now indulging themselves however they feel to try to find what they have lost. Hey, we're just going to keep keeping things here because I'm try- you're chasing a feeling. You're chasing some kind of temporal satisfaction. And James says, what have they have done? They have fattened their hearts. They have truly had to go above and beyond themselves to try to find some type of pleasure in this life. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes real quick. Because what you read here, you can almost hear the words of King Solomon reverberating in this passage. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 
verses 4 through 10. Solomon writes, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which water from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. And there you have a picture of a man who is heaping up things, people, relationships, whatever it is he felt like he needed in life, he went out and got. And in verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. You and I can heap up all the things in this life we think that will make us happy, happy, and in the end, this is what it'll be. It'll all be for naught. Now, that is not some call that, hey, if you really want to be happy, go out and become a hermit on the backside of the desert. And, and to realize that we find who we are in God and not in our things. That our trust belongs in him and him alone. Here was a man in Ecclesiastes who didn't know what else to do. So he just kept gathering more stuff to himself. If we fill our lives with a vain pursuit and try to find satisfaction there, chances are there's another pursuit not far behind. And what these rich have blinded themselves to is that there is a day of judgment that is coming for them. This is what James refers to. He says they have fattened their heart for the day of slaughter. Try as they might, they cannot find satisfaction outside of God. And try as they might, they cannot escape the coming judgment of the Lord. So what have they done? They have fattened themselves only to come to the end and have it all taken away. But it does not come unjustly. For in their actions, they have taken lives as well. And James tells us about the murder of the innocents that happens in there in verse 6. That they have condemned and murdered the just that do not resist them. As James alluded to in chapter 2, the courts have apparently been ruled by this group of people that James is talking about. These wealthy have used their goods and their influence to subvert justice. Now, God has established the courts. He did that with his people to give out what is right and fair. But man, in his sinfulness, will seek to turn even this to his advantage whenever he can. So here, the righteous or just and innocent men are being taken to court, and they cannot and they do not resist. So therefore, they're even literally being killed to keep the lifestyle of the rich going. 
What the rich fear most is a loss of what they have. What you and I, what anyone who is consumed with the things of this life fears most is a loss of what we have. When you feel that you are the master of your own fate and destiny, any threat to that fate and destiny must be dealt with, whether it's human or another physical object. And so, these rich stop at nothing to keep what they have and have become insensitive to the most heinous of sins, that is the murder of other people. And the attitude of those in this passage can be found in our world today. Indeed, there are those who do not know the Lord who deny themselves nothing and may even assent to the loss of lives of others in order to keep what they have. But even if it's not actual murder, the same attitude and disregard for others can be present in our lives. In fact, this consuming fascination with this present world's goods can be found even in the lives of those who follow Christ. God calls on us to take him as our all in all. He is the one in control, and he is the one who fulfills us. He is the hope for all of eternity. But yet we live so often with the temporal in view. And that old phrase comes back into our minds. Just a little bit more. We pursue possessions, experiences, statuses, and more at all costs. And sometimes we think, hey, if God fits into my plans, great, but I'm going to go and do this and we'll sort it out later. And by all means, you know, we'll, we'll handle our affairs first and then we'll fit God in where he fits. And that simply, friends, is sin. God is not an option in your life. He is to be first and foremost. And if we have made him optional, we need to return to him and serve him above all else. Salvation isn't a checkbox item so you can go live for yourself. It's a confession and an assent that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And if that's what you have said, that Jesus is Lord of your life, then that's how we're to live. What he says we will do, what he values we value, what he requires we give, and yet we don't do it. And it starts so seemingly innocent in our lives, doesn't it? It's the shrugging off of our time with God, you know, that personal time that he wants us to spend with him because, hey, we're too busy or we're too tired or we're fill in the blank. It sneaks into our lives as we begin to neglect joining together in church because we've already turned in our time for the week. It rears its head in our decisions of what we will do with the time or the resources God has given us when we choose pleasure repeatedly with no thought to eternity. And if you truly know Jesus Christ, you cannot live happily in that state. God will not let his children to sin successfully. And in that moment, when God convicts you of that sin, you have a choice. Will you in humility make it right with God or will you just press on 
hoping that it'll go away. And I implore you to return to him and enjoy fellowship with him. To see the foolishness of seeking fulfillment elsewhere when he has settled your soul. And he's the only one who can give it to you. Because God will surely judge sin in his holy sovereignty, I must trust him alone to find grace and peace. There are a lot of things that this world offers you. Maybe you've tried some of them. Money, relationships, experiences, family, promotions, and more all vie for your attention. But if you have tried these things and you have found no peace, may I share with you why you haven't. You haven't because you were created by a holy, just, loving, and gracious God. He he created you to have a relationship with himself. And outside of that relationship, you will never find true joy in this life and will only feel in your life the futility of your sin. And if you die in this state, you will spend eternity separated from our holy God because of your sin. But God shows you his love in his grace in this fact that he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. To offer you an exchange of your sinfulness for his righteousness. And he can settle your restless heart. And he can give you security forever. So would you like to settle this today? And if you sit here today and you say, yeah, I really would. I'd I'd like to settle my heart on this issue. I would be privileged to, to show you from the word of God. There are others here who can do the same thing. They can take you to the scriptures and show you how you can be settled in your heart that you will spend eternity with God. Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you profess faith in Jesus Christ yet feel your life is loaded with emptiness? Very simply, what is it you're living for? What is it that you refuse to surrender to God? Because again, you and I, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, we still have a tendency to focus on what's right here in front of us. May I just offer you the perspective of a man who had it all in his life? There's a man by the name of of J.D. Rockefeller. He was an oil baron. And the story is told... That when he died, a reporter went to his house seeking an answer of how much, how much money, how much did he leave behind. And a man came to the door and the reporter said, we want to know how much did J.D. Rockefeller leave behind. And the, the story says that he looked at the man and said, simply said, all of it. You and I can have wonderful things in this life. We can have a wonderful family, we can have a wonderful spouse, we can have, we can have a wonderful church, we can have uh, nice cars, we can have possessions, we can have a wonderful home. I mean, and many of us in this room enjoy many wonderful quality things in this life simply because we live in one of the greatest nations on the face of this planet. Because God has been so gracious to us. But if we do not use those things to make an eternal difference, if we do not use, keep those things in their proper perspective, they can hijack our lives. And get our priorities out of whack. And the old emptiness creeps back into our hearts. Why? 
because we refuse to surrender ourselves to following God and God alone and doing what he says. God alone rescues you from sin. God alone is your hope and stay. So use everything you have for his glory, your time, your talents, your resources, and you'll be amazed at what he can do in and through you. As we close today, I just want to tell you, I don't know where, you, where every one of you stands. I know some of you better than others. But can I just offer you all the same invitation? That if there's something you're struggling with, the Word of God has the answer. If you're struggling with, where will I spend eternity? The Word of God tells you how you can know where you'll spend eternity. If you're struggling with, how do I use these things for the glory of God? How do I get my focus back on the Lord? How do I surrender myself to Him? The Word of God has the answer. And if you need help with this, if you, if you need someone to come alongside and help point you to things of the Word of God, I'd be happy to do that. Ladies, my wife, she's around here today somewhere with our young baby. She'd be happy to sit down with you and, and show you what God has to say. There are others in our church who would do the exact same thing. Church is not a museum. It's a hospital. And the pastor isn't some, you know, hoity-toity, magical Christian. Just another human being whom God has done an amazing work in. And hopefully, he can use us together as a community to help one another as we serve the Lord. And so let's ask the Lord today to continue to do this work in our hearts, to continue to draw us closer to himself and to change us. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, we thank you for how you've poured it out in our lives. Often we think of love and grace in some expression of those things, but God, there are so many areas of your grace and love that we don't even see on a day-by-day basis, or we don't properly frame into the context of your love and grace. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see these things, that you would use them in our hearts, in our lives, to draw us closer to you. Lord, I, I pray for one who may be here today who hears this message, who has just wrestled so hard with how to find peace and they have tried everything in this life, and nothing has given them that peace. Lord, would you use your word today to hammer away in their hearts, to show them that they need you? Would you give them the courage and the boldness to speak to someone today about that, that they could know for sure from the scriptures that they would spend eternity with you? Lord, as Christians, we ask that you would continue to convict us of our sin of really of of materialism, of focusing on the here and now, of hoarding to ourselves these things. I know, Lord, in my own life, I'm guilty of these things. That we, we love the stuff so much that we forget the Savior who gave it to us. Lord, help us to be stewards of everything that you have given us, realizing that nothing we have is ours but it is yours that we can manage for you. Lord, whatever it is, whatever temporal pursuit in this life, whatever sin that has taken hold of our hearts, Lord, would you, would you break us? Would you make us 
so malleable in your hands that you, we give it to you. And may you use us in a mighty way as you restore us to yourself. Or make us submissive to you. We ask that you would be with us as we have our fellowship this afternoon and our service, that you would continue to do your work in our hearts. May we truly say it's been good to be in your house today. In your name we pray, amen.